This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news, anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress. This is where you'll hear about it while along the way trying to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, trying to better educate the general public about psychiatric illness and treatment and thereby reduce the stigma associated with it. And uh, you're getting all of that without the hype and distortion of most other media sources and with more than 20 years of experience in the private practice of psychiatry. Welcome back, folks. This is the Wednesday, December 18th, 2013 edition of Psychiatry Today. And as always, I welcome your comments about the show. I know a lot of you listen to the show. I deeply appreciate the many people who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for all the loyal listeners out there. Love to hear from you about what you think of the show, what you like about it, what you'd like to hear more or less of. But especially those of you who have mental health-related questions, perhaps you're having a problem with your mental health or someone close to you is, you've tried to get help and it hasn't worked out, you're not sure of what to do, uh, I would definitely like to be considered a resource for you to try to guide you in the right direction. And uh, whether it's a question like that or just feedback about the show that you want to provide to me, send all your questions and comments to me via email, and that email address is Dr. Scott. that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. I want to reassure you that when I read the question and provide my answer on the following week's show after I get your question by email, that uh, I will exercise appropriate care and caution to make sure no identifying information can be gleaned from anything that I say on this air. Because confidentiality is extremely important in all of medicine, but nowhere more so than in psychiatry. Well, since this is the uh, one week before Christmas edition of Psychiatry Today, and I might add two weeks before New Year's, why don't we start tonight's show with an article about reigning in holiday-related stress and enjoying the season. Now, I admit with only one week before Christmas, this might be a little bit too late, but hey, there's still time and uh, there are still some steps that you may be able to take at this late stage to uh, reduce your holiday-related stress. So let's take a look at this article. And uh, it was originally in the Grand Forks, North Dakota paper, the Grand Forks Herald. Uh, it was picked up for publication by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Over the holidays, your mind can start spinning with all of the items on your to-do list. 
and stress that results from trying to do it all can take a toll on your health, including your mental health. Now, while some stress can be good because it motivates and spurs us to take action, it can also be a bad thing if you have too much of it in your life. In stressful situations, the body releases stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, and that's a fight-or-flight response that we've inherited from our distant ancestors, though life-threatening dangers like what they faced are rare today, the body treats the common everyday hassles we face, such as multiple demands and family problems, as threats and reacts the way our predecessors' bodies did aeons ago. In the past, most of those threats to survival were physical, but today these threats are typically psychological and emotional stresses. The stress of the boss dumping a bunch of work on you or someone making you angry in a relationship has the same effect on our body as if a bear jumped out in front of you. The body diverts blood from places like the gut system to the skeletal muscles. Skin may feel cooler because less blood is being pumped to the skin. Instead, it's sent to the muscles. Perception is heightened to become more focused for visual cues. Pupils are dilated to spot telltale signs in the environment. This response produces stress symptoms that can affect your body, your thoughts, and feelings and your behavior. Stress that's left unchecked can contribute to health problems such as high blood pressure, heart disease, obesity, and diabetes. Researchers are also finding that stress is a major factor in many digestive problems such as irritable bowel syndrome. Stress can lead to inadequate or poor quality sleep. Without sufficient sleep, we can experience many of the same effects as if we're highly stressed, like gaining weight. The holidays should not be viewed as another commitment. They are to be enjoyed. And so the situation is that people experiencing holiday-related stress are having all these physical reactions that we just detailed in response to situations like being worried that they are not going to be get, getting all their holiday gifts that they wanted to on time or get exactly what they were supposed to for the people on their list. Perhaps it has to do with having guests that they don't look forward to having or being a guest in the home where there are others they're not looking forward to being around. Well, so far we've outlined the effects of stress. Now let's talk about what the article says about trying to mitigate or minimize holiday-related stress. Starting with planning ahead. Uh, now, decide in advance who is going to host family gatherings and meals. Write out the menu, make a list of everything you need to buy so you won't have to run to the store at the last minute. Failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Try hosting a potluck meal. Rather than taking on the whole dinner yourself, recruit others to share in food preparation. People like to help out. 
asked him to bring a side dish or another item to lighten the burden. This one, I think, is very important. Learn to say no. This, I think, is a very brief um, and useful word when it comes to minimizing holiday stress. Uh, The article says, Don't feel obligated to attend every single party you're invited to. It's your holiday season, too. You don't need to attend everything that you could. Stick to a budget. Also very good advice. People stress themselves out by spending too much, even spending themselves into debt. And the stress from that lingers well on into the new year. If you plan how much you'll spend on gifts, food, and other expenses, and follow that budget no matter how much you're tempted to go beyond. Even if your child asks you for something beyond the limit, you can explain, that's a pretty big ticket item. I'll give you this much toward the cost, but it's your job to save up the rest. Obviously, she's talking about uh, an older child and that bit of advice. Create a barter system. This is very interesting. It's a great way to reduce holiday stress. Trade services with someone else who can lighten your load. For example, ask a friend who has great handwriting to write out your holiday cards in exchange for something you do well. Maybe you bake, for example. Uh, This cuts out stress and also alleviates time constraints. Now, these next two things, very, very important. They really are more or less the same, but keep up with or start healthy habits. Uh, It's very important in terms of combating holiday stress to eat healthy even healthier than you normally would during the holidays. Keep the temptations away from home and the workplace. Easier said than done. Save indulgences for the special parties and on the holiday itself, not the rest of the time. To eat healthier, just uh, avoid high-fat foods and sweets. Uh, Do the best you can to keep them out of the workplace and uh, find places to give these items away if they're brought to your workplace or your home. Or again, like the uh, article says, save them for the one special day of the holiday so that you're not nibbling on them many days before and after the holiday. And going along with all this, keep up your exercise program during the holidays. Studies show that exercise obviously has many great effects on the body, such as helping to reduce stress and fatigue, elevating mood, and improving sleep. Now, I understand that uh, it's very easy to just give out this advice to people. It's often very difficult for them to follow it, and that I know that that's a challenge for a lot of people. But nonetheless, uh, I think if people are determined to enjoy their holidays more and uh, not to be stressed out by them, This definitely is good advice to follow. Now, let's get to some more serious mental health-related news from this week. First of all, and this item certainly hits home for me, psychiatrists are less likely to accept health insurance than other physicians. Psychiatrists in the United States are less likely to accept insurance than other types of doctors, 
According to a new study, researchers found that only about half of psychiatrists accepted private health insurance between 2009 and 2010 compared to almost 90% of doctors in other specialties. That is a very big difference. And I have to say, uh, for me personally, I am one of the psychiatrists who do accept some health insurance, but not all. There are only a handful of plans that I accept, and there are many that uh, I do not. Now, <clears throat> this study is part of the renewed focus on the availability of mental health services in the United States at the time of the first anniversary of this school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. All right, well, we're going to take a commercial break now. We'll touch more on this subject when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio and medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center with your recovery tip of the day. If you have a loved one who you suspect has the disease of addiction, you may need professional help in assisting that loved one into treatment. You may consider contacting your local physician, a clergy member, an employee assistance program director, or other behavioral health or mental health professionals. There are also addiction counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and professional interventionists who are trained in interventions and in assisting family members with the problem of trying to get their loved one into a safe treatment program. If you have any of these concerns, the important thing is that you reach out and get some professional help. I'm Dr. Susan Blank with your recovery tip of the day. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, giving you all the latest mental health-related news. And a very big item we started talking about before the break, a study showing only about half of all psychiatrists accept health insurance compared to more than 90% of other specialists. The study was reported in last Wednesday's edition of Journal of the AMA Psychiatry, and it, uh, it raises a lot of concerns among mental health advocates that there's limited access to mental health services due to psychiatrists refusing to accept insurance. Now, for this study, there was data collected by the United States government between the years 2005 to 2010, on average, about 1,250 doctors were surveyed every year, and about 6% of those were psychiatrists. The researchers found the proportion of psychiatrists accepting private insurance was lower than other types of doctors and decreased during the time of the study period. About 72% of psychiatrists accepted private insurance in 2005 and 2006, 
but that fell to 55% in 2009 and 2010. The proportion of doctors in other specialties accepting private insurance also decreased, but not as much. About 93% of doctors other than psychiatrists accepted private insurance in 2005 and 2006. That fell to close to 89% in 2009 and 2010. The proportion of psychiatrists accepting Medicare, the federal insurance program for the elderly and disabled, and Medicaid, the state and federal insurance program for the poor, was also lower than other types of doctors. Now, they can't tell from the data why doctors did or didn't accept insurance. It could be that it's well known that insurance doesn't pay psychiatrists enough for the extra time they spend with their patients compared to, for example, a family doctor. The findings could also reflect the tremendous shortage of psychiatrists, which means there are enough patients willing to pay up front and less incentive to have to accept health insurance to have patients on your schedule. Now, the article interviewed Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, who is the president of the American Psychiatric Association, about the research findings, and he said that reimbursement is probably one of the biggest obstacles keeping psychiatrists from accepting insurance. He said many doctors can't afford to accept insurance because the insurance companies don't pay them for the time. It involves taking more time with the patient and often treating them with psychotherapy. New regulations addressing the disparity in payments for psychiatrists should help to mitigate the gaps in doctors who accept insurance. But that doesn't mean that psychiatrists are going to go back and start accepting health insurance, whereas they're used to practicing without doing so. The shortage of psychiatrists is still a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, that's something that I thought of in, in looking over the article where they talk about the uh, proportion of psychiatrists who accept private insurance fell so dramatically from almost three-quarters to just over a half over the course of, say, uh, five years or less. I think part of that is... There is, there's been a shortage of psychiatrists for a very, very long time. It isn't just the last decade or so. And I think what's happening in our field is psychiatrists are aging out of the profession and there are not enough new young physicians going into psychiatry. Uh, there, it is um, you know, one of those specialties that is not seen as lucrative or rewarding, quite frankly, for young medical school graduates who are ending their education in a tremendous amount of debt. And there's a lot being talked about education debt in this country lately when it comes to college graduates, uh, but med school debt is considerably higher. And uh, a physician's income does not become sufficient to help pay down that debt in any substantial way till many years after they graduate med school in most cases. Now, so you have a situation where there's already been a shortage of psychiatrists, 
they're aging and retiring out of the profession and you have not enough new medical graduates filling in and that I think is one factor that contributes to the proportion of psychiatrists accepting health insurance dropping dramatically uh, going from 2005 to 2010. Now <clears throat> there have been changes recently that do recognize the extra time psychiatrists spend in working with their patients and reimbursement may have improved uh, but again uh, I don't think this is enough to reverse the trend of there being fewer and fewer psychiatrists accepting health insurance. Um, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, uh, we certainly grow tired of being treated like medicine's um, lesser cousin, and as it were, and not being reimbursed for our services as fairly as uh, other professions are. And um, so, you know, when your reimbursement rates from health insurance companies are poor and, uh, you know, there are separate barriers that our patients have to get their treatment covered by health insurance, um, it's a disincentive to work with it. Now, the reason um, I'm one of the few psychiatrists in my community which is in Roswell, Georgia, who still accepts health insurance, I want to be available to as many people as possible. Um, and so I still accept the major, major health plans. I still accept Medicare, which again is for the elderly and disabled. Uh, I still accept the major commercial carriers, Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare. Um, and this has uh, helped me to be available to as many people as possible. Um, but I definitely can understand why many colleagues of mine have decided to forego accepting any health insurance at all. Um, I think that there has to be more attention paid to covering mental illness the same as medical illness and the new mental health parity rules that went into effect just recently hopefully will help with that, but that remains to be seen. Uh, perhaps we'll get more information about this going into the next year uh, to see how the health insurance companies react to the finalization of the rules that that say uh, they must cover mental illness the same as they do any other medical problem. All right, well, another mental health-related story <clears throat> that was prominent this past week concerns the term affluenza. Now, in June, 16-year-old Ethan Couch plowed his pickup truck into two vehicles parked on the side of a Texas highway, killing four people and injuring nine. The teenager had stolen beer from a local Walmart earlier in the day. He had a blood alcohol level of 0 0.24 three times the legal limit for an adult. Media pundits, outraged citizens, and the families of the deceased are now howling for justice after Couch got a relatively lenient sentence, 10 years probation, plus a stint at a high-priced private counseling center in California paid for by Couch's wealthy father. 
The case also brought renewed attention to the term affluenza, a popular term for what has to be emphasized is a non-medical condition, if you can even call it a condition. It's marked by irresponsibility, reckless behavior, casual sex, substance abuse, and the all-around obnoxious antisocial conduct seen in some wealthy people, and especially their kids. A psychologist brought in by Couch's defense attorneys claimed affluenza was the root cause of his criminal acts. The psychologist, G. Gary Miller, said that Couch's parents gave him, quote, freedoms no young person should have, unquote. As an example of the teen's affluenza and the way the condition breaks the link between behavior and consequences, Couch received no punishment when, as a 15-year-old, he was found passed out in a parked pickup truck with an undressed 14-year-old girl. Now, this term affluenza was first coined by author Jesse H. O'Neill in her book, The Golden Ghetto, The Psychology of Affluence. The book describes the emptiness and desperation felt by many affluent people who feel entitled to everything that money can buy and suffer profound psychological damage as a result. So you see, affluenza is merely a construct of an author who wrote about the attitudes and behavior of wealthy people. It is not a legitimate diagnosis of any mental or medical problem. And therefore that this was used in defense of such blatant uh, negligent and criminal behavior is nothing short of outrageous. Many family members of the victims expressed shock at Couch's lenient sentence. There are absolutely no consequences for what occurred that day, said Eric Boyles, who lost his wife and daughter in the accident. And he goes on to say the primary message has to absolutely be that money and privilege can't buy justice in this country. Well, apparently, in this case, it did. And just as shocking and outrageous that this psychologist Miller used this affluenza in the defense of this behavior is that the judge actually entertained this defense and apparently used it in his uh, lenient sentence of uh, this criminal. Nothing else you can call him. It's a very sad state of affairs, and uh, if there are any other developments in this case, um, I will certainly bring you up to date. Unfortunately, in cases like this, it's very difficult uh, for the verdict to be changed or adjusted. All right, time for another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today on America's Web Radio with Dr. Scott. Hi, this is Kate Copsey, inviting you to listen year-round to America's homegrown veggie show every Saturday at 10 a.m. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio, with your recovery tip of the day. You might be wondering how to recognize if someone in your family or in your circle has a problem with addiction. Look for changes in behavior, such as more isolation, difficulty with sleep, problems getting along with others, avoiding obligations, loss of money, uh, loss of time and loss of interest in things that normally bring them pleasure and help them to feel good. If you have concerns about your loved one, please reach out and get help. There's always someone nearby who can assist you through the 12-step recovery programs or other addiction hotlines. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Please stay safe during the holiday season. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you on America's Web Radio, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Now, this is important for those of you who are taking Cymbalta to treat your depression or your anxiety or your diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain or your fibromyalgia or your chronic lower back pain. Uh, or your chronic osteoarthritis pain. These are all the things that Cymbalta is used for, not just for depression or general anxiety. The first generic versions of Cymbalta have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and uh, they should have been available as of this week. Now, the generic name for Cymbalta is Duloxetine, D-U-L-O-X-E-T-I-N-E, And there are several companies that are authorized to make a generic version of Cymbalta. Um, And in most cases, the generics for any medication work just fine. But there are some things that you should watch out for. Uh, Basically, if you are not feeling as well, either in terms of your mood or you're having adverse side effects that you didn't have from brand name Cymbalta, uh, you should speak to your doctor about switching back to the brand name version. Be prepared to be charged more by your health insurance company, unfortunately. Uh, Those companies are always good about imposing financial penalties when you and your doctor insist on taking a brand name medication instead of the less expensive generic. Uh, If you and your doctor provide documentation that the generic version resulted in a worsening of your symptoms or resulted in intolerable adverse effects that did not occur on the brand name medication, you have a good case to appeal the decision to be charged a penalty for the brand name. You can appeal that to your health insurance company is what I'm saying. Take some paperwork and some patience but it can be done. The other complicating factor in this is that, let's see, in this article about the generic launch, I count one, two, three, four, five, six different companies that will be putting out a generic. Now, this is a little unusual. Most of the time, when a generic is first launched, one company has the exclusive rights to put that generic version out there for the first six months. But in this case, apparently the FDA gave the go-ahead to six companies right out of the bat. So 
The other complicating factor is it isn't just switching from brand name Cymbalta to one generic version. There are apparently a half dozen out there. And what happens with pharmacies is they may say, okay, well, we're going to get our generic Cymbalta from this company, and then uh, maybe next quarter their buyers decide that, oh, well, we can get generic Cymbalta cheaper from this manufacturer. Let's switch. And the generic version of your drug is now different. Well, the tricky, complicated thing is that some patients actually feel different on different companies' versions of a generic drug. And uh, so what do you do in that case? Well, go back to your pharmacy and say, hey, you know what, since you switched from this generic to the other, I don't feel as good. And you ask them to tell you the name of the generic manufacturer that uh, when you were taking the medication and feeling good before it changed and you started to have problems. And then, uh, with your doctor's help, you can request that the pharmacy fill your generic Cymbalta prescription with that manufacturer's version of it. Uh, again, a little extra time and trouble, but well worth it if it means the difference between your feeling good taking the generic versus feeling worse taking a different generic. And again, just to specify, well, what exactly am I talking about in terms of how you might feel? What I mean literally is some people who switch from brand to generic or amongst different generics feel their mood is not quite as good. There might be some more anxiety. There might be some more depression. There might be some more irritability than on their previous medication. And there also might be worse side effects than they're used to. Perhaps that's nausea. Perhaps that's headache. Perhaps that's insomnia. Or, in some cases, with Cymbalta especially, if the generic version isn't as potent as the brand name, then a person might actually have side effects that feel much like uh, what someone would experience if they forget their daily dose. That awful swimmy-headedness, that motion sickness-like feeling that some people when they get when they stop Cymbalta abruptly. Uh, the bottom line is, if you don't feel as well as you did on the generic version of Cymbalta as you did on the brand, or if it's some months down the road and your pharmacy switches from one generic to a different one, and again you don't feel as well. Uh, Discuss this with your doctor and see what can be done uh, to either appeal getting back on the brand or uh, trace back the generic you were taking when you felt well and stick with that one. It's a shame that we have to pay such close attention to these issues. The uh, Food and Drug Administration mandates that generic manufacturers ensure that their product is what is called bioequivalent to the brand name drug. But the dirty little secret of this process is that the FDA only mandates 80% bioequivalence of the generic version to the brand version, leaving in a worst case a margin of 20% for error or difference between the brand and generic version. Now to be fair to the generic manufacturers, they far exceed that minimum 80% standard the vast majority of the time. 
But when it comes to a medication that is supposed to affect emotions and behavior, for goodness sake, much less than 20% variation can mean a huge difference depending on the individual. And so that's why it's necessary to be very careful and uh, observe how you're doing when you switch from a brand name antidepressant like Cymbalta, which has been very effective and very popular, to the uh, generic versions. All right, now this study caught my eye because it uh, sort of gives more information and validates a concern that I've had for many years. And it's about a study having to do with the impact of people who immerse themselves intensely in media coverage of uh, certain very serious events. And in this case, it has to do with coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings, which unnerved many people. A new study suggests that immersing yourself in news of a shocking and tragic event such as this may not be good for your emotional health. People who watched, read, and listened to the most coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings this past April, six or more hours daily, reported the most acute stress levels over the following weeks. Their symptoms were even worse than people who had been directly exposed to the bombings, either by being there or knowing someone who was there. That, according to the researchers, and I agree with you, that sounds quite remarkable. Now, those exposed to the media coverage typically reported around 10 more symptoms, such as re-experiencing the tragedy and feeling stressed out thinking about it after the results were adjusted to account for other factors. The study authors say the findings should raise more concern about the effects of graphic news coverage. Now, the research comes with caveats. It's not clear if watching so much coverage directly caused the stress or if those who were most affected share something in common that makes them more vulnerable. Nor is it known whether the stress affected people's physical health. Still, the findings offer insight into the triggers for stress and its potential to linger. This according to study author E. Allison Holman, an associate professor of nursing science at the University of California, Irvine. She says, if people are more stressed out, that has an impact on every part of our life, but not everyone has those kinds of reactions. It's important to understand that variation. Holman studies how people become stressed and has worked on previous research that linked acute stress after the attacks of September 11 to later heart disease in people who hadn't shown signs of it before. Her research has also linked watching the 9-11 attacks live to a higher rate of later physical problems. In the new study, researchers used an Internet survey to ask questions of 846 Boston residents, 941 New York City residents, and 2,868 people from the rest of the country those who were exposed to six or more hours of bombing news coverage a day 
reported more than twice as many symptoms of acute stress on average as those who were directly exposed. The symptoms included such things as being on edge or trying to avoid thoughts of the bombing and its aftermath. What about the ability of the most stressed out people to devote six or more hours to news coverage a day? Does that mean they're retired or on disability or unemployed? And could that status play a role? Well, Holman said being employed or unemployed didn't appear to be a significant factor in the findings. Findings examined stress levels in the weeks after the bombings but didn't look at them over the long term. The stress could become a normal, acute, and immediate reaction to an event that dissipates over time. But the gist of the study stands. More exposure to coverage seems to be connected to more stress. Knowing information about the effect of media exposure on mental health after a disaster can inform public health initiatives. For example, after a local disaster, the Red Cross usually tries to get local media coverage to help provide information about physical and mental health problems that may be present in order to help people adjust and get the help that they may need. Now, the study appears in the December 9-13 to 13 issue of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And we have to take another commercial break when we come back. Some final thoughts about this study and more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. Be right back. Hi, everybody. It's Don Zabkar, your host for Who Knew? We air Mondays 2-3 to 3 on America's Web Radio and then occasionally throughout the week. We've got some great subjects. This administration or this regime, as you know, is providing us with great material. So stay tuned. Check us out. America's Web Radio. It's Who Knew with Don Zapkar. This is Dr. Susan Blank with Detailing Addictions on America's Web Radio and the medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. That invitation to the holiday party is often met with major anxiety, both for the newly recovering person as well as for their loved ones. Is this party going to be the reason and he drinks? How can I be comfortable if everyone else is drinking? What will we tell everyone if we don't show up? If you do have to go to a holiday event, you can make it safe and even an enjoyable experience with a few simple suggestions. First, don't go alone. Make sure that there is another person there you can look to for support. Second, keep your hands filled with your favorite refreshing non-alcoholic drink. Empty hands are a challenge to any good party host. Third, practice saying no thank you for all of those loving people who want to fix you a drink. And finally, have an exit plan. Know where your keys are and when it's time to leave. Even a pre-prepared phrase that let your loved ones know it's time to go. This is Dr. Susan Blank. Have a happy holiday season. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, you're a psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, going over all the latest mental health-related news. Now, before the break, we went over a study that showed immersion in media coverage about very serious tragedies, such as the Boston Marathon bombings, causes severe stress in certain vulnerable people. Now, this research that we just talked about before validates an observation that I've had for many years. It was my observation after the intense media coverage of the attacks of September 11, 
that many people who already were uh, quite anxious or had anxiety disorders, and especially post-traumatic stress disorder, were quite unnerved by that, quite severely stressed. And uh, I recommended to many, many patients not to keep watching it because it was just exacerbating their condition and causing them to regress and deteriorate. I have also seen this happen with people who immerse themselves in media coverage of uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, that took place um, in uh, Alabama and Louisiana and other places in the Gulf. And I have also worked with some Vietnam veterans who had a severe exacerbation of their post-traumatic stress symptoms by uh, watching coverage of uh, the Gulf War and the wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, So this research basically just validates uh, the observations that I've had in my own patients over the years. And uh, and while it, it may sound extreme, you know, in many cases I have urge people not to look at media coverage of things like this. Um, I certainly would never be one to have people ignore the harsh realities of the world we live in, but uh, simply not to immerse themselves in watching the continuous stream of coverage that we all can experience uh, if we just turn on the TV to the right channel or even looking online. I think for many people, they're much better off limiting their access to it because of their own unique vulnerabilities, either due to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or other anxiety disorders. And perhaps a, a good way for these folks to limit their exposure would be read the newspaper. Uh, it's finite. You read the article, you're informed as to what happened, and then when you finish the article, that's it. It doesn't keep going on and on and on, replaying the same images over and over and over again the way uh, TV coverage does as well. Uh, Theoretically, online coverage would not be as uh, much going in a continuous loop as the TV coverage is, but then on the other hand, uh, online you finish one article and there are links to more and that can also kind of keep going and going. Uh, So just something to think about uh, that now there is um, uh, valid research documenting that spending too much time looking at media coverage of tragedies, for some people anyway, is very detrimental to their mental health. Let's turn our attention to quite a different subject. Now, there is so much that's been made of trying to alleviate uh, female sexual health uh, problems, particularly lack of libido. The multi-decade search for a pill that boosts sexual desire in women has just recently hit another roadblock. And this raises questions about the future and the futility, really, of efforts to develop a female equivalent to Viagra. Sprout Pharmaceuticals, oddly named, I think, said last Wednesday 
It has reached an impasse with the Food and Drug Administration over its drug, Flibanserin. The daily pill is designed to increase libido in women by acting on certain brain chemicals. The FDA questions whether the drug's benefits outweigh its risks, considering its modest effectiveness and side effects, including fatigue, dizziness, and nausea. Sprout said it's appealing an October letter from the FDA that denied approval and asked for more information. But chances for eventual approval appear slim. Of the 17 appeals the FDA considered last year, 14 were denied. The FDA's latest rejection raises serious questions for more than a half dozen companies working to develop therapies for women who report stress due to lack of libido. It's a market drug makers have been trying to tap since the blockbuster success of Viagra, an erectile dysfunction drug approved in the late 1990s to increase blood flow to the genitals. But unlike sexual problems in men, most of women's sexual issues are psychological, not physical. As a result, there are a number of alternate causes doctors must consider before diagnosing female sexual desire disorders, including relationship problems, depression, mood issues, things such as side effects of other medications, and, and also hormone disorders. Experts say developing drugs for female sexual dysfunction is so difficult because of how poorly we understand the root causes. Erectile dysfunction is a really easy thing to measure, but motivation is a hard thing to measure, and quite honestly, we don't know enough about what creates sexual motivation to manipulate it. The idea that a single pill could restore female libido grossly oversimplifies the problem. Even if the FDA eventually approves a drug for female sexual dysfunction, it will likely be used with non-drug techniques to reduce stress and improve self-image. Drug makers have made several unsuccessful attempts at tweaking their approach to boosting female libido over the years. Initially, Pfizer tested Viagra on women, hoping that the drug's ability to increase blood flow to the genitals would increase sex drive in women. When that didn't work, drug makers turned to hormones, including the male hormone testosterone. It is a fact that women need a very small amount of testosterone to help sustain their libido. In 2004, an FDA panel rejected Procter & Gamble's testosterone patch in Trinza due to questions about its long-term safety, despite evidence of effectiveness. Sprout's flibanserin is the first drug to up, uh, approach the problem through brain chemistry. It acquired flibanserin from another company in Germany, which abandoned development of the pill following an FDA rejection letter. Researchers believe the drug works by boosting dopamine, a brain transmitter associated with drive and motivation and libido, while lowering serotonin a transmitter 
uh, linked with appetite and, and feelings of uh, sedation at times. Studies of the drug shows that it boosts sexual desire, reduces stress, and increases sexually satisfying events reported by women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is a lack of sexual appetite that causes the women stress. Now, despite some positive experiences of women who have taken phlebanserin, the FDA has twice rejected it since 2010. A key issue for the FDA is that women taking the drug reported only 1.7 more satisfying sexual experiences per month than women taking placebo. Sprout executives argue that number is statistically significant, even if it seems very modest, and warrants approval for their product, notwithstanding the side effects, considering that there are no other drugs approved for the condition. Sprout's chief operating officer was quoted for the article as saying, we've now got 24 drugs for men for either testosterone replacement or erectile dysfunction, yet there are zero drugs for the most common form of sexual dysfunction in women. The FDA, which does not comment on drugs under appeal, is expected to make a decision on Sprout's appeal in the first quarter of next year. Now, somewhat uh, related to this article, sticking with the issue of women and libido and medication, is that exercise might lift libido in women taking antidepressants. It might treat sexual problems in women taking antidepressants, especially if their workouts occur right before sex. Hmm, that doesn't seem like uh, very convenient. Well, you know, honey, I don't really feel amorous, but let me go work out f first and then I will. I don't know. Well, that's just how this research was done. We looked at 52 women who had reduced desire and other sexual side effects from their antidepressants. And for the first three weeks, women didn't exercise. Then they were divided into two groups for the next three weeks. One assigned to exercise immediately before sex. The other group assigned in, to exercise in a way that was not time to having sex. Then they reversed the two groups for another three weeks. So having regular exercise at all improved orgasm in all, all the women. But those who did the 30 minutes of exercise immediately before sex had a significant boost in libido and overall improvements in sexual function. The study was published in the online uh, version, in advance of the print version of depression and anxiety. Moderate exercise activates the sympathetic nervous system, which plays a role in blood flow to the genital region. Antidepressants have been shown to depress this system. The findings suggest that regular exercise might be a chief and safe, safe way to treat the sexual side effects of antidepressants. But how often would a woman and their partner think it's a convenient and good thing to do to just for her to have a workout before having sex? Somehow or another, I think researchers need to approach the problem another way. I think, though, one useful take-home message is that regular exercise, whether it's time to sex or not, uh, seems to have a beneficial effect on sexual functioning and may help to overcome the sexual side effects women have from antidepressants. Well, it's time to wrap up not only tonight's show, but the show for another year. 
I want to thank all the listeners in 2013 and look forward to bringing you more mental health-related news in 2014. And I hope you have a wonderful and stress-free holiday season and new year. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening.